This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, Mason, I really need a good gift for my generic loved one. Any ideas? Oh, yeah, Andrew. I have the gift they need. If you sign up for GoDaddy's Economy Blogcast Package, you'll receive 1 gig of disk space, 100 gigs of bandwidth, recording tools, and much more. Whoa, with all those features, I'd guess that kind of package will run me at least $20 a month and be plastered with ads. You're wrong, Andrew. The Blogcast Economy Package is just $4.49 a month for 12 months. That's a deal and a perfect way to get your own website, blog, or podcast started. Ooh, yeah, that is a deal. Plus... Enter code Muggle when you check out. Save an additional 10% on any order. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. Because voicemails have finally returned, this is MuggleCast, episode 131, for February 10th, 2008. Hey guys, as much as I genuinely love you both, meaning myself and Eric, since I'm not going to be on the show tomorrow, I just want to say, can you please stay focused with the topics at hand while recording? I ended up cutting most of the show, uh, off-topic stuff, out of the show last week because it was long, and listeners really don't want to hear about Star Wars and other movies, etc. Feel free to draw parallels, but don't dwell on them. I'm not trying to lecture or anything, but just please keep in mind tomorrow because it's what's best for the show. Thanks, love you both, Andrew. Can you believe that, Eric? He doesn't want us to talk about what we feel like. Uh, it's just I I don't know, man. It's uh, he he's been he's been censoring me since episode three. So I I I just uh, I I've learned to live with it. You know, I mean he he makes good decisions usually. Usually, but it just it, it it just means that that we can't. I I don't know. I don't know, Mikey. I mean, you're you're the, you're the movie guy. And you get really enthusiastic about it. And he, he's telling me not to do it. I, I know. I agree with you. And uh, Well, welcome to this week's uh, Andrew List show. We have... I don't know. That was a really bad segue, but I'm trying to move us along. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got a pretty good show for you guys this week. We're going to be talking about Chapter 14 in Deathly Hallows. Uh, this is also featuring the return of voicemails once again. I know you've heard that umpteen times during the life of this show. And we also have part two of our interview with Freddie Highmore. So with that, I'm Laura Thompson. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Mike Tannebell. And I'm Mikey B.
Micah Tannenbaum is standing by in the MuggleCast News Center with the past week's top Harry Potter news stories. Micah. A few weeks ago, we told you about two Deathly Hollows rumors, it could be split in two, and Steven Spielberg is being considered to direct. The latter item has picked up an extra piece of evidence after Richard Griffiths, who plays Vernon Dursley in the Potter films, reportedly told Teletext that Spielberg is a candidate. He said being in a Spielberg film is a pretty good place to be. My agent had conversations with him, so anything is possible. He is further quoted as saying, I'm not in the sixth film, so I want bigger roles. I asked J.K. Rowling if she could write Vernon a bigger part, and she said no, so there you go. It is important to remember that nothing is confirmed. This should not be taken seriously until more solid sources come forward. Spanish publication XL Seminal conducted a special interview with J.K. Rowling a few months ago, although it has only now emerged online. In a preview of the article, Joe discusses Minister for Magic, Cornelius Fudge, likening him to English Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. Joe was quoted as saying, My model of the world after Voldemort's return was, directly, the government of Neville Chamberlain. In Great Britain during the Second World War, when he tried to minimize the menace of the Nazi regime for political convenience. In the interview, the author also talks about her personal life and relationships, as well as politics. The full interview is now available online. And Half-Blood Prince filming at Gloucester Cathedral is well underway. Cast, extras, and crew are now all present at the cathedral. This is Gloucester.co.uk has plenty of new photos. Finally, the Literary and Historical Society of University College Dublin will present J.K. Rowling with a James Joyce Award on Tuesday, February 12th. That's all the news for this February 10th, 2008 edition of MuggleCast. Back to the show. Thanks, Micah. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Micah. <laughs> okay, so we've had some pretty good news this week. It's been better than some other weeks, right? What do you guys oh, think? Oh, yeah. No, I'm excited about uh, our first point that we're going to talk about, Laura. Yeah, I'm, and you I mean, you're the, you're the film guy here, Mikey, so why don't you start us off on that? Well, but don't talk about film. <laughs> All right, Andrew. Well, anyway, only Laura and I can discuss <laughs> it. Okay, but I'll, I'll read it off. Uh, Spielberg rumors again have emerged. What do you guys think about that? You know, I'm not sure what I think about it because I feel like Spielberg has done some really great stuff and then I feel like he's done some really awful stuff. So, I don't know. It, if, he, if he directed the film, it could be really good or it could be really bad. Well, all right. My question is, what did you think that he did was really bad? That's one of the questions, you know, like... Well, what I mean, really what, what immediately springs to mind is just that I feel like he's kind of got that Chris Columbus quality of kind of making everything happy and light. Because um, clearly Schindler's List no, was but that's a not, very happy film. That's not what I was referencing, though. Like, clearly Schindler's List was a very, very well done movie. Um, I don't know if Spielberg has any specific producers he works with regularly. Maybe Mikey could tell us about that. But I just know that there are certain films that he's been very much uh, complimented on, whereas there are other films that people are just like, what is this? Like, I don't know. It's true. There are critics of Spielberg films. My biggest thing is Spielberg really hasn't done a horrible movie in quite a while. Um like, you know, just looking at his last movie, like, I'm on IMDb right now. You know, his most recent movie that's coming out is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I'm super excited about. 
But his last films, Munich, which did great. War of the Worlds, I was kind of iffy on, but it was still, you know, I think it had too much Tom Cruise, not necessarily his directing. I think he did a great job on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're not even going to go to the Tom Cruise story. Um, but, you know, Terminal, Catch Me If You Can was a great movie. I thought Minority Report as direction was great, too. AI, I thought was an amazing film. Obviously, it didn't do really good, you know. But but a lot of his stuff, like, I, as a director, I like... Spielberg. There's really not much of his stuff that I don't like. He doesn't direct as much anymore. He really doesn't. He's been producing a lot. So it's true. And his movies, in my opinion, are are always so I, I want to say heart, heartful. You know, very very hearty movies. He he kind of he kind of creates. You know how movies how stories should be told. You know he he he's obviously you know the big name big name guy. He's the big guy who does this sort of thing. He makes these movies that are classics like E. T. And he really makes he, he's a he's a movie maker storyteller. He's he basically writes these. He does movies. He's how movies should be made. You know because he has such creative control in them. And I just I there's something that connects with how he tells his stories. Um, with me. I love all of Spielberg's films. No, I agree with you. What do you think, Micah? I'm just wondering, though, it, it, would he be the right person for Deathly Hollows in the sense that, and I'm not saying the directors that have come before him aren't big-name directors, but they seem to have kind of found their place a little bit with the Harry Potter series, and I'm not sure that bringing in such a big name to do the final film would make it any more impactful than if somebody else uh, who had worked on the films previously would have would have come around and directed, you know, like an Alfonso Cuarón, like a, maybe even a David Yates again. I I just I'm afraid that you know it, this is a story that's sort of being over sensationalized, like it has been in the past, and. I'm not really sure that you would need to bring in Spielberg. Would it be cool? Yes, but and it even goes to some of what Eric was saying before. You know, he's kind of this great storyteller, but kind of in his own way, I don't know how well he would work off of other people's work. You know, Mikey, if that makes sense. Um, no, no, I I, I can see where you're coming from. I, I, I don't that. know if I would say that he couldn't bring up, work off someone else's work. Like again, you know. Looking at War of the Worlds, I think he did a phenomenal job with that. And even Jurassic Park, that was a Michael Crichton novel, and I think he did a great job with that film, um, directing it. You know, and, and it's one movie. of those things where I like the score. You know, obviously John Williams did the Harry Potter score, but you know John Williams did Jurassic Park too, and I could just hear those notes right away. And I know it's Jurassic Park, I know it's Harry Potter, I know it's Star Wars. Uh, I had to put John Williams in there with that stuff, yeah. but. Uh, well, see, that's the thing, yeah, because Spielberg and Williams work so yeah, well Yeah, and I would together. love to see Williams and come they, back for the they, last Harry Potter movie. Uh, that's exactly and, the thing I was thinking, is if Spielberg comes back, does John Williams come back? Yeah, that would be a cool thing. Especially, like, here, here's one thing, you know, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of film stuff, is people are more forgiving of bad video or film quality versus music. And the reason why is film is at 24 frames per second. So half the time, you know, in between each cell of frame or each frame, there's a little black bar. And so that's playing through as we're watching our movies. So half the time we're sitting in a theater, we're sitting in pitch black. You know, we don't see it being black because our eyes keep, you know, memory of the picture. But music and sound, we're hearing everything. And I would love to hear an 
you know, not saying that the other scores, like I love the Order of the Phoenix score and, and I really like the music for Goblet of Fire. You know, obviously these weren't done by, um, John Williams, but I would love to, you know, if Spielberg brought back Williams to do the last one, have this amazing, just big Hollywood style, just really big score for the last movie. Just give it a big send off, you know, that I think it really would deserve because it's just, you know, it's the final chapter in this huge, you know, for Warner Bros. This is a huge franchise. And for us, this is a huge, you know, it's the final movie of the book series. You know, like I remember finishing reading the book and I was sad and I'm going to be sad watching the last movie in theaters. And I'm going to be the first one to buy it on DVD, but it's the last thing. It needs a good send off. And I think, um, and you could have John Williams back. I mean, you don't need to have Spielberg to have John Williams there. Um, no, I know, but uh, yeah, which is an and the, this kind of leads into the next point. But the, this is a semi-reliable source that at least we're hearing these rumors from in in the form of Richard Griffiths talking about potentially being in a Spielberg film. We know he's not going to be in Half Blood Prince. But he uh, is definitely going to be in the final film. So, I mean, what do you guys, do you give any more credit to the rumor that it's coming from somebody like him as opposed to just, you know, some tabloid? I do. Just the idea that Richard Griffiths thinks it's uh, possible is, I I think it gives a a little extra credit to it. I, I, I would like to see... I would like Spielberg. I would like to see Spielberg have his hands on the material. Is 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 kind of what it is. Like most of my urge for for Spielberg, I, like I think it would be really cool if he directed uh, the movie of Book Seven because obviously they're really convinced that they're going to do it uh, quite big, possibly two films as we talked about last week. And it's just I would really like to see Spielberg have his hand on the material. So. Just the idea that Richard Griffiths is saying, well, you know, it might be really interesting to do a Spielberg film, and I think it's possible, then, I, you know, I think it does give credit to it, and I think it's really one of those interesting rumors that's going around about the seventh movie. Right, and I think we'll hear more as, as time goes on. Obviously, you know, there'll be more and more rumors as we get closer to something being announced. Uh, but speaking of Richard Griffiths, um, you know, he also brought up the fact that he's not going to be in Half-Blood Prince. And I really can't remember if this was made public. And if it was, I don't think prior to this we ever discussed it. Um, and to me, this is kind of disappointing because the whole scene that takes place on Privet Drive in Half-Blood Prince was really one of my favorite scenes in the book. And now we learn that it's not going to be there. What are your guys' thoughts about this? Well, first of all, I wonder how they're going to tie in Dumbledore. Like, it, it would just seem weird if they had Harry leaving Privet Drive and joining Dumbledore without even seeing the Dursleys, you know? So I really wonder how they're going to set that up. I can tell you, I see it now as a filmmaker. <laughs> this is what is opening. You know, you see the Warner Brothers thing. The camera pans down onto the street as Dumbledore and Harry walk up to go find, uh, um, you know, Slughorn. Yeah, it, it's they're you know gonna cut gonna things out, to and it, because, it's kind of a because, bummer. But I, obviously, I don't know anything about the movie, so it's not like that's what's going to happen in the movie. But it, it's like that's a you know, they're just basically if they're not going to, Dursleys aren't going to be there. What's the next logical step? And it's going to go straight to. Slughorn, and actually, it might even go to the interior of the house because you know the last ones have kind of started out kind of dark, so it might be like the house with blood on it, and then it pulls out, and there's Harry and Dumbledore on the step going in, going, "Oh my gosh, what happened?" And then they find Slughorn. You know what I mean? And 
Do you think he'll be turned into a couch and then <laughs> Dumbledore will prod the couch and then the couch will be like, Ouch. That would be kind of cool. I hope so. I, I'm actually... Didn't, I'm a little sad they're not going to do this scene. Like, like I said, it's one of my favorites. No, I am just too. Like, it's, 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 it's such a great... And I think what it is too is that it's, uh, it's a big distinction between book Dumbledore and movie Dumbledore, obviously. You know, if you read the books and, and you get this really great sense of uh, how J.K. Rowling writes Dumbledore in the books, and it, it, it's a really great scene with him taunting sort of uh, trespassing well, he, on their hospitality. Exactly. And the best part is, says. you know, like he offers them drinks and what do they do with the drinks? The drinks just keep hitting their heads. Like, I would yeah. love to see that. And That'd they be ridiculous. Just see, you know? like these, I can see how it doesn't really add anything to the movie, the story, but like it shows you a little bit more of Dumbledore's character. Like, yes, I'm going to pour drinks for everyone. And then the Dursleys are just so frightened and like refuse to touch anything magical. That's just hitting their head. I'm, you know, juice or whatever is spilling out and hitting them. And they're just like, will you stop this? You know, Vernon getting upset with the big old vein and all that. I'm disappointed with how little the Dursleys are in the films. I, I It's not a big concern of mine, but I really like seeing it done. I really like the actors doing it. And you can kind of tell that they kind of enjoy doing it. But but obviously, Richard Griffiths is, is getting, um, I don't want to say, uh, well, he, he's very concerned. He In this article that we have, he says he asked J.K. Rowling to write a bigger part for Vernon. Now, that, that seems like, some, that seems quite interesting. You would, you know, you'd say, could you write me a bigger part for the movie? And she said no. And rightfully so. I mean, I, I think that the Dursleys have always served a particularly significant, you know, a certain function. They serve a purpose in the books and then they're gone. That's it, you know. But there's always been the sense of returning to Privet Drive and it, it seems so upsetting to me. It, it just upsets me a lot that the Dursleys aren't even going to be in, in Half-Blood Prince. Yeah, it's but a, I mean... Another opportunity missed. Honestly, thinking about it, though, I mean, just thinking about the way Mikey described it, there were a couple of important things that happened in the Dursley scene, like Harry noticing Dumbledore's hand, but that's all stuff that they can do, like, as they're walking down the road or whatever, like, oh, Professor, what happened to your hand? And, like, and you He's know... like, not now, Harry. You know, it's, it's like one of those yeah. brush-offs things, that, you know, like, again, the Dursley scene, everything important that happens there, we can live without. Because we can pick it yeah, up again. And the right. only And, like, I'm thinking about, again, I haven't read the book in a while, the only important thing is the hand. And he says, not now, Harry. And again, if it starts on the street or starts in the house, that could be picked up right away, you know, where even if Harry doesn't know it, maybe Slughorn notices it in the house. Go, And Dumbledore, what happened to your hand? Oh, he's like, had a little run-in with Voldemort. You know, there's so many, like, little things. Yeah. Like, it's... again, it's a screenwriter is rewriting a book that we've memorized in a sense. So we know what's supposed to happen, and a screenwriter's taking their liberties and they're not really necessarily – I'm sure all the screenwriters have read the book. You know, We know some actors haven't, but um, Michael Gammon. But it's one of those things they also have to look more at the movies because this is a movie version. So they have to make sure that everything in the movie is kind of co – kind of continues the story from the movie standpoint, not necessarily the book standpoint. If you um, guys remember, uh, Goblet of Fire obviously begins with the murder of Frank Price. But then Harry wakes up and he's at the burrow. And immediately they're on, I think it's Stoat's Head Hill. They're, they're, they're on the hill where they meet Cedric Diggory right in the very beginning of movie four after Harry wakes up that morning. It's, it's just in a, in a few quick scenes, they're 
are already being transported. Well, yeah, I mean that. Oh, oh, yeah, no, no, and no, that's no, like that's that like that eight chapters in too. I mean, yeah, quick. it's like a hundred pages. It's a hundred pages that's for that quiz. hundred pages, and it's done in like five was, minutes. It's like done in five minutes. And that was when the, that was when the twins were were they blew up the fireplace in the Dursleys. There, there was a the Dursleys have a pretty big scene in book four, which was completely gone from 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 the movie. So it's possible to do it without. It's just you know one could argue that. The other thing that's missed in this whole thing is the relationship that exists between uh, Dumbledore and Petunia, or Petunia and the Wizarding World. And you know, Dumbledore kind of takes a kind of takes a swipe at them when he makes that comment about Dudley, saying, you know, something along the lines of that they neglected in their raising of him, how he turned out. I forget the exact quote, but yeah, they said that he said they'd done more damage to Dudley. In the way that they yeah. raised him, but yeah, that's that's quite interesting. You're right. The relationship between Dumbledore and Petunia, or particularly many relationship, any any reference to Harry's parents, any kind of thing like that, seems to be absent from the movies. As as you know, except for Aunt Marge in 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 movie three, uh, that was kept in a little bit about um, bad parentage sort of thing. But it, it's just it's just something that I I think what it is is that. You know, you're in this this film with all these British actors, and they're so good at what they do. And even things like even watching David Bradley is fun to do. So you always want parts for it, and it's just that you know the time of the film overall won't permit all of this. You know, won't permit you to do everything you want to do with these great actors. I agree with you, but at the same time, I mean, there's so much that's probably able to be cut from this film in particular that leaving something like that in, I think you could probably do. So I'm just a little disappointed. Right. Now, we probably need to move on to the next piece here. Um, Actually, there was a new, and it's not really a new interview, but it just came out with uh, J.K. Rowling by the Spanish publication XL Seminal. And she actually talked about uh, Cornelius Fudge, and she likened him to English Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. Uh, She actually... the Chamberlain. Chamberlain. The quote is actually, My model of the world after Voldemort's return was directly the government of Neville Chamberlain in Great Britain after the Second World War, when he tried to minimize the menace of the Nazi regime for political convenience. This is pretty interesting considering some of the ties to our Nazi World War II uh, parallels we brought up with Deathly Hallows. What do you guys think? I think it's interesting. I think not having grown up in in that time or not being familiar with that era of British history, I can still say that's really cool. You know, I can still say it's cool that J.K. Rowling had someone in mind, and and we knew that she kind of did when when writing a satire, a political satire, as she as she has done. You know, taking some things satirically in government. It's uh, good to know specifically though what she was thinking about, and I'm interested now to read up a little bit of history and figure out what kind of guy. Well, he I mean, was. basically, he was a guy. That, that just had a policy of appeasement, you know, towards yep. Hitler. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, he turned a blind eye to Hitler um, in order to advance his own political career, which, if you think about it, sounds a lot like Fudge, you know, turning his eye, you know, or turning a blind eye to Voldemort and, 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 and hoping and, he would and go hoping away. That the, the, the things that were starting to occur around him, you know, wouldn't fully materialize and, you know, really acts out against Dumbledore thinking that he's just on a quest for power but in fact Fudge and I know I've said this you know episodes ago you know, I really hated Fudge when I was rereading Order of the Phoenix because I thought in ways he was just as worse if not you know more horrible oh, than Umbridge yeah. 
I mean, essentially acting as an enabler, really, whether he wanted, whether he meant to or not, you know, just completely useless. She spoofed that guy. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. All right. Well, Micah, do you want to move us on to some announcements for this week? Yes. <laughs> um, just a reminder to vote for us on Podcast Alley. We are in the new month of February. Um, and we are currently number six over at Podcast Alley. So just uh, remember to go ahead and vote. And I think that's the only announcement, right? Uh, well, Andrew sent me and Eric the email, but I think he left you an, a statement. Andrew's statement to the fans. I think you need to read that, Micah. Do I really have to is the question. Uh, yes, you yes. need to read it. Pretend it doesn't exist. No, no, no read it. Okay. Guys, come on. Andrew took all this time to write up a nice statement to the fans. I you know, have to say, it's like... New York Times bestseller worthy. Oh, really? This is the best okay. writing I have, have ever read, have seen. Have you read it all the way through? Have you read it all the I way through? Yet. It's pretty. It's massive. Oh, my you goodness. Know, just... It's like, I was like, wow. Okay, Micah, you, you do the honors, please. Dear loyal listeners, I regret to inform you my poor puppy dog is suffering from a severe case of kitty cooties. It happened whilst I walked my dog through the local pet mart just about 10 minutes from my home. I'm only at his bedside for the next few days, and we'll be back on the show next week, back and better than ever. Actually, you'll hear me in a little bit when I conclude my interview with Freddie Highmore. Laura, Micah, Eric, and Mikey smell. That's nice. Moreover, I just lied to you all. I have no dog. There's no such thing as kitty cooties. And there isn't a pet smart ten minutes away from my home. I still stand by the fact that Laura, Micah, Eric, and Mikey all smell matt and i will see you next week lovers wow wow andrew my life is so impacted i I am uh it's my life is now complete no no spielberg no spielberg doing seventh movie i'm happy now i'm 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 happy without a sixth i I just have to go out of my way to say that uh laura doesn't smell laura actually wears a very nice perfume and actually it's really cool because when you pick it up the bottle purrs do you shower or do you just put on perfume Oh wait! You have a purring yeah, bottle. Yeah, here, here, perfume. listen. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> do it again. Do it again. No, they've already heard it twice. But yeah, I do shower too daily. Actually, Micah, oh, I good. know that must that's be good. a shock. I was just wondering why. I do why too. I shower daily too. Matt got I don't thrown know why in I there. The smell. Well, I what, what what exactly was Andrew? So Andrew was walking Matt, right? <laughs> and, no, and no, it was puppy, cat, it's puppy dog. And, his puppy and dog. He was at PetSmart, or was Matt at PetSmart? Matt was walking. I'm confused here because Andrew was walking his puppy. Or, Are you saying no, Matt wa- is Andrew's puppy? Is that what you're saying? What is he not? Oh no! no. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's, it's anyway, a- apologies, let's, let's Andrew. Let's go to Muggle mail. Uh, muggle mail. Ma- Matt was walking. <laughs> muggle mail. And- muggle mail. Let's go. Yeah. Right, come on. Take you it off, Mike. Stay back there. Me and Mike are going to go to Muggle mail. Okay. I'll take the first one. Uh, This is about the chapter title I guess you guys were discussing last week, and this person stresses that it's not the Muggleborn Registration Commission, it's the Muggleborn Registration Committee. Come on, guys. What were you thinking? God forbid you say the wrong word every once in a while. I mean, there's not people out there listening to every word that we say. All right. But anyway. I apologize for everything I ever said. You better apologize. Okay. I really don't care if you apologize. Uh, do you think that? 
Mad-Eye's eye could see through the walls, etc., when it was in the door. I would assume so because it worked with Imposter Moody, but if the door is an inanimate object, dot, 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 I think these are all points that this person was trying to make. Yeah. Um, I think that was the reason it was there. Like, I was almost under the impression that it was being used like a peephole. Yeah. Well, there, in fact, there was a whole telescope-type thing attached, attached to it on the other side right. of the door, yeah. which Harry specifically had to pull off and get the right. eye out of. So, And in this chapter um, that we're about yeah. to discuss in a few minutes, I think he even references it. He said that's how they knew that there were intruders was from the eye. So... Well, the eye was missing. Right. Yeah. But but again, that still brings up my questions. Like, where did Mad-Eye get this magical eye that no one else can recreate? You know what I mean? Like, if it can see through walls and everything, why didn't everyone just, like, replace their eye with, like, a magical eye? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it seems like uh, everybody wants one. You know? It'll be like the Tickle Me Elmo of the Wizarding World. <laughs> he was powerful. Maybe he created himself. You never know. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, maybe. All right. Next point, Mikey, I love your theory about rain cloud frisbees. That'd be kind of cool, right? Yeah. I don't know. LOL. And this, by the way, is all coming from Esther 15 in Jerusalem. So thank you, Esther, for sending in all these points. She, The next thing she says, the picture is Grindelwald and Dumbledore. When Harry sees the, see- the thief through Voldemort's mind, he realizes later that it was the picture in the book about Dumbledore. Did we not... Ah. We were confused. We thought it was like um, Dumbledore's brother or something. Yeah, it was the pitch the, on the cover of the book. We didn't know who it was at the time. Yeah, it was just a teenage boy, and it wasn't introduced. But later on, it's revealed to be Grindelwald. Um, next point, Pius Thickness was under the Imperious Curse by Yaxley. The Imperious Curse does not enable the caster to read minds, and even if it did, Voldemort wasn't the one who had cast the curse on Thickness. That was the conclusion we reached. Yeah. So, that's all good. Okay. And then, like Eric said, the locket probably did have an effect on Umbridge. She was just so much in her element being evil that the locket enhanced her evilness. And she thinks that Joe said something about that as yeah, well. Yeah, that's what Eric said. So last point. Why don't you handle that? Because I wasn't here for that make the connection. Okay, so the last point here is the make the connection for Andrew Ray furry hat. She says, what about Crab or Goyle's furry hat in movie three in the Shrieking Shack scene? The one where Harry cries or tries to... The, the one where Harry uh, throws... N- Oh, yeah, the one where Harry cries. Okay, he does cry. Um, what about Crab and Goyle's furry hat in movie three in the Shrieking Shack scene? I completely forgot about that, but that's probably true. Didn't he have, like, a uh, sort of hunting uh, moleskin sort of beaver hat? Yeah, he, he did. Yeah. yeah. But I think, <laughs> was, they, I think was... they all had kind of like a furry type of hat still. Like, I, I know I know uh, Malfoy's wasn't like, no, Malfoy didn't have a hat. Someone had a hat that had ear flaps, and it wasn't necessarily a furry animal on the outside, but it was all furry on the inside, like sheep's, like you know, wool or something. They were all furry at some point. Plus, you know, also the Book of Monsters is also furry. You know, lots of different things are furry in the movies. And the but you books. don't wear that on your head. Neville kind of wore it on him at one point. Yeah, yeah, Neville, kind of. <laughs> Neville wore the <laughs> okay. book at one point because it was eating him. But you know, beyond that, that, that was awesome. All right, is that it? That's the end of the email from. Uh, Esther. Oh, and she, and Esther, and she signs it, Gold Quacks and Pickles. 
Okay, so the second Muggle Mail here is from Nora, age 18, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Subject is the Dursleys in Half-Blood Prince. Dear Mugglecasters, I'm writing about a question I have concerning the upcoming Half-Blood Prince movie. Since the Dursleys are not appearing in this film, I was wondering how you guys think the movie's going to start out. Okay, so as we know in the book, Dumbledore pays the Dursleys a visit and picks Harry to escort him to the burrow. Do you think the Dursley's absence would mean that this scene is going to be cut? It just seems a little weird to me if Dumbledore picks Harry up from Privet Drive and the Dursleys aren't there. I would be absolutely devastated if that entire scene with Dumbledore is cut because it's one of my favorite parts in the series and my favorite scenes tend to be left out of the movies. Just want to hear your pins on that. Love the show. Thanks. So, Mikey, we did talk about this, and you think that it's possible they're going to start with Harry and... Dumbledore walking down the lane or towards, straight into uh, Slughorn's house. Yeah, or straight into Slughorn's house with all the blood and everything on the wall, you know, and then, you know, you see Dumbledore and them come running in going, what's going on? You know, just, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like the Harry Potter movies, none of them have had a really slow start. You know, I mean, they've all kind of, except for like the first one. And even then, it was wasn't slow because like it was kind of slow. And then you saw like the magic happen and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Well, you see the magic happen. Yeah, you see McGonagall turn from cat into woman, and you know uh, Richard Harris was like, "I should have known that you would be here, Professor McGonagall." <laughs> you know, and then also you see a flying motorcycle. So right away, stuff happens kind of big. And I can see them just walking up, you know, the street towards the house, or it's right into the house, and then like Harry and Dumbledore go, "Ha ha! I'm here to help you." It, 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 not obviously it, it, that it, comical. But. And to make it perfectly clear, they did film that scene where they're walking up the lane. If you recall, they, they, yeah. they, there used to be a lot of news stories about uh, Slughorn and the actor who plays Slughorn and them filming those scenes. So there is a lot of um, – and they chose a little uh, town square, a small town square to do that in. So it seems like there will be outside scenes and it won't just be inside Slughorn's house and then somewhere else kind of random. So I think you're probably right, Mikey. That might be where they swoop in for the opening credits. And you know what? It's going to it's gonna fit with the rest of how the movies have started. You know, all of them have started at night. Not all of them, but I, no, 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 not all of them. But but most uh, the of the one recent ones, yeah, the recent, all well, most of them have, and they fly through the clouds, and then you know you get the title, and then you get the Warner Brothers thing, and you know I'm right now I'm thinking right away for uh, this uh, fourth movie where it's like you know the music, and then you push through the Warner Brothers thing, and you go up the little thing, and it's all night, and again that's a night scene outdoors, gonna fit the color scheme they've been working with, the nice metal Warner Brothers logo, so they definitely can do it, and the camera just drops down, seeing them walking up, and then. Harry and Dumbledore did can have that little the band. dark mark above his house also? Uh, no, he didn't. That's why Dumbledore knew he was in no real danger, because there was no dark mark. Because because uh, because uh, um, Slughorn set up his entire house that way really quick, you know, you know, with all the... Uh, Wait, are you sure there was there. no dark mark? There was no dark mark, and then Dumbledore specifically says to him, the only thing that you were missing was the dark mark. He's like, yeah, sadly, I've never learned that. So he couldn't pull it off that like something had happened to him because he never learned the dark mark because he's not a Death Eater. Guys, we you know should know this. Is. That's like an e- that's an easy one. Yeah, we know. We, it. we know Moore's what the condition is. More, more, yeah, more You know, we know it. All right. So well, uh, Mikey, do you want to read the next one? From Antoine, uh, age 18, from Los Angeles, California. California, here we go. Um, so his message is, Hello, Mo Casters. Just started listening to your podcast very recently, even though my friends told me to listen to you guys ages ago. I have some comments to make about last week's chapter by chapter. First, regarding uh, Ron's spell work, like someone said, sorry, can't tell your voices apart, you know, so on. Uh, actually, I should read that whole thing, huh? I shouldn't just paraphrase, huh? 
Let me go back from here. First, regarding Ron's spell work, like someone said, sorry, I can't tell your voices apart from the others except Jamie and Laura. Ron was under pressure and had no idea what spell to use. Uh, plus, when Ron... Uh, when had Ron ever known to solve a problem like getting rid of a raining cloud? He's pretty incompetent when it comes to spell work. Second, I like the named Undesirable Number One. It's a very wizard-like and ministry-like. Uh, they have funny names like that, and Arthur enormously and Arthur, like Arthur's enormously large department name title, which I believe is called Head of the Office for the Detection and Confiscation of Counterfeit Defensive Spells and Protective Objects. Uh, trying to say that, try to say that five times fast. Third, regarding the voices of the author of the actors in the film during the Polyjuice scene, it annoyed me a bit as well that Harry and Ron's voices were dubbed over Crab and Goyle, uh, dubbed over Crab and Goyles. But looking at it from the viewer's point of view, and to introduce Polyjuice Potion, they had to have their voices that way to establish that within the facade of Crab and Goyle were Harry and Ron. In Deathly Hallows, though, the voices will probably be kept to the original actors, like with Moody's, and the only changes will be when they first become their respective ministry workers, and when they begin to change back into themselves for for seven potters it can go either way ron spell work what do you guys think i i mean i honestly agree he was probably under pressure i mean i don't know i think and and i mean i think a lot of people get this impression from me that i hate ron or something because i've you do men- don't you no i don't i've <laughs> you mentioned don't like a couple him because he's got red hair come on we all know this laura no redheads yeah, are very prejudice. attractive um but the thing, my thing with Ron is mostly sometimes he's just very daft, and I get annoyed with that. But I really do love Ron as a character. He's actually my favorite of the trio. Um, so I think a lot of the times people sit around and they say, "Oh, Ron's dumb. Ron would be nothing without the other two. And I don't think that's true. I think he's just a different person, and he operates in different ways. So well, what exactly he, was this in relation to, though? I mean, I know you were talking obviously about him in the chapter, but. Is it just that he doesn't seem smart enough to be able to try and get rid of something like that on his own, or I think what what was I think there was a debate going on. I don't remember specifically about whether Ron was under pressure or if he just didn't know if he was just dumb or whatever. Yeah, I'm the one that says like, come on, Ron was under. I I kind of stood up for Ron saying that he was under pressure. You know, like if you're under that much pressure, like Ron doesn't do well under pressure. We've kind of seen that historically through the books and in the movies and that's where we kind of stepped up and i kind of stepped up for him but the last part of the comment from uh antoine Antoine. is uh is that he's pretty incompetent when it comes to spell work and i don't think ron's incompetent i just think he's not you know hermione is the brightest away yeah he thinks too much for a lot of things you know and hermione and, and it doesn't look like he does but he really does on a lot of things like he's powerful wizard and we see that by the end of the book you know i mean come on he was able to come back and destroy the first horcrux that they destroyed together you know what i mean yeah they, they, and he, he was able to open know. the chamber of secrets which is yeah which is pretty <laughs> awesome yeah <laughs> but but it's one of those things where yes you know he was under pressure and i don't think he's incompetent i think it's you know we, we're constantly seeing him compared to the brightest wizard of their age which is hermione and come on harry potter's harry potter the book's titled after him Harry's got to be cool, you know what I mean? So right. So yeah. Other than you just not liking redheads, uh, Laura, I, I, I agree. You know, Mikey, I dyed my hair red oh, okay, three months okay, ago. Okay. Oh yeah, I forgot. Okay, I right, love redheads. On. Oh, I forgot about that. Um, I love that too. That was really nice. Um, okay, fourth uh, Muggle mail from Angel Walsh, age thirty-two, from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, she says, "I don't think the locket uh, bothers Umbridge because uh, it knows that she reveres the locket. I know she's not." 
it knows she's not trying to destroy it. Uh, she thinks that the locket is very similar to the One Ring in how it affects the wearer when it knows it's in danger. That's a good comparison between the One Ring and the Horcrux. Right. And we actually have that as one of our discussion points for chapter by chapter, uh, which we're going to be getting to. But first, uh, we have the second and final part of our uh, interview with Freddie Highmore. So, Andrew, why don't you take it away? Um, now, how about those magical creatures? That um, that must have been another challenge. Was it hard acting with these, what were they? You said ping pong balls. And I think I looked in a uh, picture book at the bookstore the other day, and they were just uh, they were just props. Is it hard acting with those? Um. I guess it's a bit harder than just having an actor there, but uh, I guess that you know they did it quite a lot to make it um, to make it easier, and they had the actors pre-record some of the voiceovers for the animated characters, and they were played over a loudspeaker, so we had something to to react to. Okay. Um, and also, we were shown pictures and various animations, and they had big cardboard cutouts of the uh, of the creatures, so we knew what we were, we were looking at. It wasn't just like going at it blind. Right. Right. Now, um, what, what was your favorite scene to film? Um, favorite scene to film? Um, I think it was kind of fun doing the scene uh, on the griffin. So there's, a, there's a griffin ride um, towards the middle of the film. Okay. And uh, it was kind of fun. We did it all on, all on blue screen. And um, basically, it's just, it was like a, almost like a bucking bonco kind of thing. And you sit on, it moves around, and... Um, they have big wind machines in your face, and Mark Waters, the director, was always trying to call out, and we couldn't really hear him. But it was a it was a great you know it was a great scene to film. Cool. I know a lot of fans um, are going to be coming to this movie already having read the book. My brother actually just started reading Spiderwick a few weeks ago, and he loves the books, and he loved you and Willy Wonka. Um, are these book readers going to the, those who have read Spiderwick? Do you think they're going to really love the movie? Yeah, I think so. I think it's. Um, it hasn't hasn't changed things too much, which I think you know sometimes films can do with a book, um, and it's kept with all the all the magical creatures that are already written in there. And I mean, I know there are other things that you can get with the with the books before, like as field guides and stuff, and yeah. that all that all matches in with the film quite well. Okay, great, great. Now, uh, moving on to your career, um, <laughs> <laughs> have you always wanted to be an actor? Um, it's always been something I. I found like it would be fun to do, you know, and have a have a go at. And um, when I was younger, I just got you know got lucky, really. As I say to everyone, I'm I'm just a pretty lucky guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, I started by doing sort of smaller parts, and they got bigger and bigger. And and that's how how it really went. There was never one moment when I said, "Oh, I'd really I'm just going to go for being being an actor now, and that's what I want to be for the rest of my life." Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I don't know. I guess I can still change my mind, you know, and wake up and say, oh, I'd love to try something else. So right. just keep my options open. But as I said at the moment, it's 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 a great thing to do. Great. And, and do you want to continue it as you get older? Yeah, definitely at the moment. But, um, you know, keep going at school at the same time. So right. you can change your mind and while become you're fi- a physician or something terrible. Yeah. While you're filming, are you being tutored or do you, do you just take breaks from school? No, we have a tutor who always comes out with us. Okay. Um, uh, I mean that's kind of the law. You still have to keep going with school. I'm afraid. Oh, okay. And so uh, we normally do. It's, it's three hours a day. You have to do. Okay. Uh, and I mean it works quite well. The school can email out the work, and we, you know, I do it with my tutor and go through it, and then we can email it back, and they mark it. You know, almost within 24 hours or so. So even oh, okay, with the time great. difference, it's almost like I'm still at school. Yeah. 
Now, um, do you, do you want to continue on taking films such as Willy Wonka and Spiderwick, which are sort of fantasy, or do you prefer roles like um, August Rush? Um, I think it's nice to do different things every time, um, yeah. and not you know not just do. Uh, I mean, like I, I think I've I've managed to do that. I've, you know, I've done one with twins, and then mm-hmm. um, there was Charlie and August Rush, where I played the guitar and was like a you know a musical person. Yeah. And I think it's kind of interesting not to have to play the same character every time and, and be able to create a new one and, and work with them in, in every way. So it's, so it's new every time. You're not just, you know, playing the same person and the same old emotions. Right, right. Um, and do you have any other movies lined up in the future? No, not at the moment. Um, okay. I've got uh, GCSEs, which are... Um, oh, okay. <laughs> big exams here that we've got to do. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. I'm working towards them. I just did my mock exams um, last week to practice for it. And they went quite well, actually. So hopefully in June, the real ones will um, be a success. But at the moment, I'm just preparing for them. But maybe in the summer or something, if if anything came up. Okay, cool. So what we're going to do now is Freddie is going to ask you guys a question related to Spiderwick. And... um, if you don't know the answer, you can always check spiderwickchronicles.com for the answer. Freddie's going to ask you a question, and then the first 15 people to send their contact information and the correct answer to caitlin at staff.mongolnet.com will receive a pair of tickets to see the movie in IMAX. So, Freddie, what is the question this week? The second question is, what are the two distinct varieties of trolls? All right, so once again, send in your correct answer and contact information to caitlin at staff.mugglenet.com. That's K-A-I-T-L-I-N at staff.mugglenet.com. And the first 15 people to send in their correct answers will receive a pair of tickets to see the movie in IMAX. Thank you very much, Freddie, for joining us. That was great to talk to you. It was great talking to you too, and uh, we're definitely looking forward to seeing uh, Spiderwick when it comes out on February 15th. Thanks very much. No, I think think you have great fun. Yes, we will. Bye. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Andrew. That was a really, really good interview. Very interesting. It's always good to uh, hear from Freddie Highmore. He's he's a good kid. Um, so we're moving on to chapter by chapter now for chapter 14, The Thief. Uh, just for a brief summary of this chapter, it's right after um, Harry, Ron, and Hermione infiltrate the ministry and they have apparated. Tried to go back to Grimmauld Place, but Yaxley, I believe, Yep. was it? That, yeah, that grabbed Hermione's uh, sleeves, so they have had to abandon Grimmauld Place. They can't go back. So now they're in the fr- in the forest where the Quidditch World Cup takes place, and Harry actually sees into Voldemort's mind when he's using Occlumency against Grigorovich to find out who took the Elder Wand. So um, just looking at some of the points here, what I found interesting towards the beginning of the chapter, uh, Hermione talks about how you can actually give away the secret under the Fidelius charm without meaning to. Because she said, I gave away the secret, didn't I? Because he was holding on to her. So, theoretically, let's say if somebody followed someone else under an invisibility cloak into mm. a place that no, was no, protected... No, 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 that won't no, actually no, no, work. No. That, yeah, no, I, I caught it right away too, Eric. Yeah. that, that um, I think it was a very... Unfortunately for Hermione and everyone else, it was a very specific way of telling the secret to Lee actually the fact that they apparated into the place if uh, the, the way magic works inside a long apparition I assume it was it, w- it would be as if Hermione were taking Yaxley there to invite him in for a cup of tea to you know to, to, to take him and show him so because they apparated into 
or onto the front doorstep, you know, they they apparated to a part that was underneath the Fidelius charm. That was Hermione basically telling Yaxley the secret by taking him there. Uh, even though she didn't want to take him there, she did, and that was what she meant. So this was ba- you're, you're basically saying this was a cause of almost a flaw with apparition because you can actually potentially take somebody somewhere with you even if you don't want to. If they yeah, touch or you. if, right. if, if that, they were to grab hold, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same thing. And big thing is, you know, the, the wording for it, I believe, because I, I read it last week, I haven't reread it again, but it was like, I took him within the Fidelius Charms um, little know, bubble power. Like, it, yeah, w- that's yeah right. within it. You know what I mean? And it was because it was within it that she kind of brought him in. And since since Dumbledore died, everyone that knew was now secret keepers. And I'm sure Voldemort had probably, you know, asked Snape, well, where was the Order of the Phoenix? They probably all left. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, uh, Snape had said they were all gone. They're not that stupid, so it doesn't matter. But if Yaxley was like, that's where Harry Potter is, I'm sure they'll, you know, Yaxley is not a secret keeper because he was told, but Snape was. So Snape could actually go ahead and say, hey, this is where it is and get all the Death Eaters in. So, you know. Well, and it, it, they wrote in the book as well. She wrote then that at that very moment, Yaxley could be apparating people into Grimmauld Place. Now that he knew where it was, now that he was able to see it, and the charm, he was basically told either the charm itself broke or Yaxley knows where Grimmauld Place is. It, it, when I was reading that the first time, it was very emotional for me because I was getting very attached to Creature. And just the idea uh, that they, they paint Harry, uh, Harry is thinking about Creature who was making steak and kidney pie for them. You know, well, what would happen to creatures? Should we call him or not? And they decide that they shouldn't actually call him just in case he actually can trace where creature is going. So they, they had to abandon creature in the scene. And I, I, I thought that was particularly emotional. It, right. it was, but the, the thing that I didn't understand about that, you know, it, you could argue either way on their decision, but I don't know that creature wouldn't have been able to come without any sort of problem. Because he's under the control of Harry, it's not like he would just allow Yaxley to do anything to him. Or to grab hold, or he would be smart enough, I think. See, I think the other thing about Hermione, uh, she panicked. You know, it, it it all happened so fast. Yaxley grabbed hold of her while they were apparating, you know, and, and it all happened so fast. I think if they did if they did want to call Creature, he would have been able to, or, you know, you could have say, Creature, come here when you're safe, you know, sort of thing. And Creature would hear that and then wait to apparate. That that sort of thing, I think, could happen. But then again, we've seen uh, even Mundungus Fletcher. We've seen him sort of dodge Creature uh, when when Creature was searching for him. So uh, there may have been uh, there may have been a risk involved in either tracing Creature. And and I I think they were right because they don't. Uh, the thing about the trio is that they don't actually really know what's going on. They don't know. It's not even revealed to them yet that there is a taboo, as they call it, on the word Voldemort. They don't know how the Death Eaters found them last time. They right. really don't want to take any chances. They and just, I think they, a lot of it goes back to yeah. uh, this idea just being rushed and being completely moronic in some ways uh, in how they go about it. I mean... Going into the Ministry of Magic, and I didn't get to weigh in on this last week, but going in there, dressed up as three officials, and and just kind of thinking that there would be no consequences whatsoever, that they wouldn't get caught in any way, shape, or form, it, it was just unreal. And, you know, 
you think about Harry feeling the need to go down um, to the trial that was taking place because, and I can't remember who brought this up, but he has a thing for saving people. And it's just, it gets in the way sometimes. And I know that they had to go down there to try and get um, Umbridge's necklace. Get the locket. Well, they had to get Herm- he had to get Hermione out. No, I, I agree with you, Micah. Like, and even it's brought up in the book. Like, Harry gets is in Umbridge's office um, by himself, and he's like, "I can't believe that." You know, I don't remember the exact wording because again, it was last week. But it's along the lines of he can't believe that they spent all that time playing how to get in, but they didn't have a single plan what to do once they're in if they got separated. They didn't yeah. think about that at all, and that's you know that's one of the things. Is like, okay, we're three random people. Exactly. What are the chances if of some Death Eater that you know Ran- Rancor that uh, Ranhorn or whatever Harry was? Sorry, I don't I don't know it. Rancorn. I don't have it off the top of my head. Rancorn, yeah, Rancorn, and um, the guy that Ron was. He's from Magical Maintenance, and you know, like these people probably don't hang out. You know, they're not <laughs> arriving at the same time, so there's no really not a good chance that they hang out together. So how would these three people walk around together inside the Ministry of Magic? And Hermione's smart; she should have realized this, but they didn't think about it, and so they definitely get in over their head. Yeah, um, and I mean, not that. to mention Harry actually tells them that the reason they knew there were intruders was because he took Mad Eye's eye off her office door. And it's like, you know, I understand that it's infuriating to see that they've taken this. But the thing is, Mad-Eye's dead now, you know? And it's just, I understand that there's a certain amount of closure that they would gain from that. But it was really a stupid move. It it really was. What just shocks me is that if they had planned it for months, which they had... Um, Hermione makes a duplicate locket, which is something that I was particularly proud of her for doing last week. I mentioned, wow, that's so cool, Hermione made a duplicate. So I, I think if they would have talked a little bit, or if Hermione would have you know, s- spoken the plan, she would have told Harry how to make a duplicate, and if he wanted to take Mad-Eye's eye, he could have at least put something back in its place, instead of, you know, because instead of being that obvious by just taking the eye. It, it just seems like a not, you know, not very well-coordinated plan, which is, which is just, you know, we're not we're not bashing the trio necessarily. I mean, I particularly enjoy how the mystery unfolds as to whose identities they did take, but it's still a bit of a, a bit of a, you know, it's, it's a bit of a leap and it's a bit of a, just sort of, they fall into the ministry and, and don't expect to get, you know, you know, very well, very caught. It's, 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 it's no wonder they're in over their heads. They're just, you know, yeah. they're just kind of still. It's almost through. like it's, it's one of those scenes where you, you see uh mad eye, banging his head against a desk, you know, if if he oh, was yeah. still alive because <laughs> he would just be so infuriated that Harry would do something like that. Well, because the same thing happens at Gringotts, doesn't it? Don't you remember? They just sort of blunder in, you know, and with yeah. no real plan. You know what, though? It's kind of like it's who these three characters are. And it kind of shows you that they're still kids. You know what I mean? They're, they're kind of bumbling through this, trying to defeat, you know, the darkest wizard ever. And... They really don't have that good of a plan. Like, I remember reading the book, my first time reading through, when Lupin shows up at uh, Grimmauld Place, I was excited going, yes, yeah. now they can finally do what they need to do because they have someone helping them. And come on, Lupin, and he even says, I was your teacher. And then Harry goes off, and I'm like, okay, I understand where Harry did this, but it, it's one of those things where it's like, now they're still on their own, though. And they got in there, and what was Hermione doing? You know, Polyjuice Potion only lasts for so long, she's going to be sitting there taking notes and turn back into Hermione Granger. 
You know what I mean? And Ron is drenched. Harry is like running around. It's like, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, but they're still kids. You know, they're not even adults. And not only, or they're all seven, they're 17 now. Yeah. Not only did they not consider who they were, they didn't consider what their jobs entailed. Then, you know, what you just said that she was going to be sitting there taking notes. I mean, it's, it was just very rushed, but let's, I guess, get back to Eric. You brought up earlier, the uh, whole taboo. Um, did you want to go well, into that a little bit y- more? Y- yeah, it's interesting because in this chapter, uh, they pitch the tent, obviously, which is the same tent uh, as they had in book four when they were at the same place they are now, basically, um, in the same woods. They pitch the tent, and they're beginning to discuss what has just happened to them, and Harry's about to say Voldemort's name when Ron stops him and says, Don't say the name! Of course, Ron then says, show Voldemort a little respect. But um, basically speaking, Ron has sensed sort of precognitively in a way that that they shouldn't be saying Voldemort. I mean, and he makes a great point and he says, look at where that got Dumbledore, you know, sort of thing. He just says, you know, if it if it really doesn't matter that much to you, just please don't say the name. And so he stops Harry from saying Voldemort. And I think it's t- two or three times it happens where Ron quickly tells them not to say the name Voldemort. So Ron, in a way, even without knowing it, saves them. And I, I, I thought that was kind of interesting, kind of cool how Ron is sort of piecing things together and preventing his friends from doing that. It's also Ron who comes – because he leaves and storms out, he's also the one that comes back and lets them know about what's going on. When you say Voldemort's name, that's how they track you. Ah. So it, it's him that lets them know that. So it, it's kind of nice, you know – that, you know, it, it's kind of nice that it's Ron throughout the entire time. Say, so don't say it. And we automatically assume it's because Ron just hasn't had enough courage yeah. to actually speak this right. guy's name. We assume it's a, like, uh, whereas Hermione, thing. yeah, yeah, it's because, you know, Hermione and Harry have, um, but Ron hasn't. But then when we find out, it's like Ron, you know, d- it, you know, it feels like a jinx to him. It's one of those things where it, it just, you know, it didn't feel right to say. And the minute, you know, as soon as he said it, now it is a jinx. You know, so that's that, when, that, the, yeah. yeah. Well, he does say it in Grimmauld Place. Uh, he, he says does. it, uh, I think it was two chapters ago or three chapters ago. But he doesn't say it after that. You have to wonder. I know you said uh, precognitively, but you know, it's almost like maybe he knows something or he thinks he's onto something. And just what what he learns while he's away kind of confirms that. Yeah. But it, well, I think another thing as far as courage flaw is that, I mean, he was raised in a wizarding family, unlike Hermione and Harry. So he has been raised to fear the name. He has been. You know, none of his family would say the name either. So. Yeah. And in relation to that, I was going to kind of say, you know, Eric, you just brought this up. Ron, out of the three of them, has had the most exposure to the wizarding world throughout his entire life. And I think this could really say something about how intuitive he might be, how he might have that over the other two, just knowing how things work and just having grown up there. Maybe he might not be able to explain why something is, but he knows somewhere deep down that they shouldn't be saying it. And I think I just think it's really great. I think it lends a great amount of credibility to Ron's character because people are so ready to bash him any chance that he has he red get. hair. It's because he's got red hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that's the, I think that's the title of this chapter. Well, no, Harrisist or something instead of, instead of racist. If he, you're racist, if you hair-cist. yeah no well if you're prejudiced against <laughs> someone's hair, what does that make you? A hair racist. 
Well, no, hair's not, not a race. Or it's not a race, excuse me. What would you say? I would say you're prejudiced against people with We need to come up with a word. Colors. JK Rowling would be able to do this. No, I think our hair hair judas? Hair, I don't know. Hair, hair aside, hair. Anyway. Whatever. Anyway, continue on. Anyway, now that we're kind of done discussing this whole taboo thing, um, I want to go back to a point that was actually brought up during our model mail, and it's uh, the idea of Harry wearing the locket around his neck so that it falls over his chest, and that connection to Frodo wearing the one ring over his chest, and the very similar effects it has on both of them. Um, I personally have not read Lord of the Rings in a very long time. I've only read it once. Uh, Mikey, I think that uh, you're you're a pretty big fan, aren't you? Yeah, I, the, Matt's really the one that should be here. I've only read the books, uh, the Lord of the Ring trilogy plus The Hobbit. I haven't really gone any further because I know there's a lot of other books out right, there, like yeah, fandom same. type stuff. But uh, I've uh, I've only read the those four books about maybe two or three times, which is, is a lot for some books, but they were really good stories. Um, but no, I agree with you totally. There's huge parallel. Um, same thing as, you know, when Frodo first puts the, wears the ring, not necessarily just wearing it around his neck. He feels, you know, it's, you know, I think even the movies show this, uh, it's a totally bizarre and kind of a cold experience to him. Same thing with Harry, you know, it's, it's not warming up from his body. He, it stays cold. It's, it's this object that's just kind of almost like pure evil. And the ring is not, you know, the one ring in Lord of the Rings is not considered pure evil. It's one ring control mall. But it, it, it's like, you know, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm trying to stay away from a Star Wars parallel here, but it, it's one of those things where it's just so like, it could be abused. Same thing with, you know, you know, splitting your soul. That's an abusive thing to yourself. And it's just really bad. And that's why it stays cold and, yeah. They really are. It gives you, and again, you see it in Ron, really, how it just makes him feel bad. You see it in Gollum, too, where it's like he's obsessed with it and it's like totally, you know, warps him. Same thing with Ron, totally makes him not the same character. So Isn't there's definitely a parallel there. Where he starts to think about things happening to Creature um, yep. at the hands of Yaxley. So, I mean, we start to see it begin to take effect on him in very small ways. And, you know, we start to get that idea that maybe there's more to this Horcrux or Horcruxes in general and that we end up learning about later on in the book that they can sort of have this negative effect on you. Yeah. What about this idea of the Horcrux having that kind of effect because it knows it's in danger? Like the one muggle mailer brought well, up. I think it was I, I, I could swear I've seen it before or something, but just the idea that there's that the Horcrux itself, that the locket, has a little beating heart in it. Like if you were to open that locket and it would just be this little beating heart inside detached from everything. I could swear that that was so familiar to me when I read that, that just, just the idea of a little beating heart and I don't know what it's from. It could be from another series, maybe something else I read, but it Pirates of the Caribbean? Maybe. <laughs> Davy Jones? <laughs> Maybe. Davy Jones' heart. Uh, yeah. He who holds his heart controls Davy Jones. But um, um, but no, it just seems so familiar that it would be a little beating heart and this 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 evil sort of sort just this thing. It was such a good. It was it was so well written. Just the idea, the imagery that there would be a little beating heart inside this little locket is just really kind of creepy and eerie, and it's really good stuff. Yeah. I really liked the way she described the heartbeat, too, because generally when you think of something human or something good, it's described just as a heartbeat, you know, but she actually called it a ticking. Yeah. 
which I found interesting. Almost like, I mean, I was thinking, you know, something along the lines of like a ticking time bomb. Exactly. Essentially. She says, says, is it ticking down to how many days I have left? Yeah. Mm She, that whole thing reminds me of uh, like the R.L. Stein goosebumps. Like that whole little like imagery you get. That's something yeah. like you'd read back in like first, second grade about you know the R.L. Stein goosebumps. Yeah. It was a ticking heart inside this locket, and it, it was just eerie. Yeah, totally. And and she uses uh, sort of descriptors like irregular. You know, like it was like an irregular ticking, or or it wasn't on time with his heartbeat. You know, you sort of think of something. If it's sapping him, it would you know sort of join his heart, become warmer, but it stayed cold, and it stayed you know sort of an offbeat of of Harry's heart. It's just a separate thing, the separate entity that's just there, and it's it's sort of it's it's damning, and it's it's an evil evil thing. What I thought was kind of cool was uh, during this whole scene with the Horcrux. G.K. Rowling a couple of times uses the word mastering and that Harry tries to master um, himself, his fear, his exhaustion. And I just thought, you know, kind of going back to the whole idea of him being the master of death in the end of the book, that she was dropping these subtle clues very early on. Okay, so there are some things we didn't mention. Well, do you want to bring those up? Just a few things we didn't mention. Ron got splinched. Um, did right. you guys want to talk yeah. about that at all? How interesting that was to see Ron's thing? That was actually really a kind of kind of funny thing to do because um, Ron got splinched, and you know he was the one that was so worried about getting splinched. And again, it kind of comes back from he knows what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas the other two didn't grow up with the horror stories of getting splinched. Plus, they also didn't have two older brothers kind of harassing them. Um, but he's the one that got splinched, and it's not his fault. It's Hermione's fault that he got splinched. Yeah, because she couldn't really because he did do the side along apparition with yeah. him. Um, it's just it's one of those things too. I mean, it's written. Harry always thought it was a comical thing, but seeing it on Ron, it's obviously hor- horrific. You know, and 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 it, it's really blood and, and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. just a piece yeah. of his arm is gone. So it said she was shaking. Um, so yeah. I, she, well, yeah, I mean, how would you feel if there was some person who you were highly attracted to, and because of you, a huge chunk of their shoulder might never forgive you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, at least it was, at least, at least it was me, just part of his shoulder, not something else. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Mikey. I'm thinking about, like, what about like, losing show? his head? Jeez. What are you talking about? Like, can you imagine like part of it's like missing, or like his brain is like missing? Come on, that would have been ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, that would suck. I think if that I happened to me, resist. I would go. Come I would go on. bury my head somewhere. Just, I would never come out. Laura would care if he had red hair. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, Laura would make sure that she splinched his hair off, so it's you know so he that he would... something else back. So I like redheads. I think red hair is pretty. Leave me alone. Uh huh. Right. Pretty, yeah, Laura. Whatever you say. Um. Okay, and right. let's just talk about this Grindelwald thing or this Gr- Grigorovich uh, thing. This vision Harry sees. Um. The because uh, obviously huge. Voldemort wants huge. something from Gr- Grigorovich, and obviously he doesn't get it. But he performs a clumency on Grigorovich to figure out what's going on. Now we don't know at this point that it's the Elder Wand, and we're made to wonder what it what it could be. But um, this man here, the man who stole the Elder Wand from Grigorovich, who Voldemort sees when he uses a clumency, is described as being a bird, like bird like a very bird like golden. He, you know, is described as being perched on the windowsill, sort of thing. Now, Voldemort's the only one who can fly, 
but th- this this bird like appearance it really threw me off kind of when I when I was reading about it. To me, when I was reading it, I just thought of him being beautiful. Really, oh. like it, it wasn't like she was describing him as being handsome. It was that he was very elegant looking. Yeah, kind of like a... And, I don't know, I thought of this one, and I don't want to take it too far off topic, but I don't know if any of you have ever read uh, um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but um, there's actually one point in the book where, and I forget his name, uh, Carew, I believe, who's a member of Parliament, is um, out walking, and he's described as being a very beautiful man. He's not... All of the words associated with him are not masculine at all. And there's actually one part where um, he encounters Hyde, and Hyde kills him. But before that, he's, like, propositioning him to do something. And it's debated that it was related to homosexuality. And I just find that whole thing very interesting because clearly Dumbledore loved Grindelwald and just this whole idea of him being described as beautiful yeah. when there's that whole sort of relationship going on just kind of interested me. Yeah. I think it, it, there is a very majestic quality about being described as bird-like even if, you know, and just being perched as if you can have that sort of balance to be perched somewhere, you know, and, and just, uh, yeah, you're right. It does command a sort of uh, elegance to, to uh, an elegant quality to Grindelwald. Um, but we don't know who he is and we don't know what Voldemort's doing with him. So it was a very interesting right. scene, I think. Another one of those interesting visions that Harry's well, having. Her- Harry also remarked that Grindelwald had a, uh, again, he didn't know it was Grindelwald at the time, had a, uh, uh, very Fred and George like quality to him, kind of a mischievous thing. Mm. I would I would assume. Well, and uh, mm-hmm. well, my question: What if what would stealing the Elder Wand do? Because wouldn't the Elder Wand not? We we realize this later. The Elder Wand is kind of stubborn. It will not transfer ownership to a person just if you steal the wand. Is that correct? Because you have to sort of right, mm. but you you can still physically steal it. It's just not yours. You know what I'm right, saying? Right, but. That's the whole thing. It's like even if Grindelwald just steals it with him, he would have had to duel Grigorovich for it to actually change ownership. Yeah, but or did something. did he know that? Well, I'm not sure. It just seems like stealing the wand is a is, is a thing to do. But then you won't be the the one or or whatever was emphasized later. But you know what though? I, I think it goes back to kind of the story, and this is where it is. I think this is how Dumbledore was able to defeat Grindelwald. That the Elder Wand was not Grindelwald's. But because right. the Elder Wand saw Dumbledore defeat the person who had it in possession, the Elder Wand passed to Dumbledore, Dumbledore and Dumbledore was his real owner. That's what I think it is, too. And that's how I see it happening. So I don't think Grindelwald was ever the owner of the Elder Wand. I think he just had it in possession. And then the Elder Wand skipped over Grindelwald and went to Dumbledore, even though, you know, it, it's the same thing. It's like, again, we see Harry defeated um uh, Malfoy and Malfoy didn't actually have the wand, but it followed it that way. Mm. You know what I mean? Because it was Malfoy that defeated. Because it actually defeated. You know, it was in the sense and the fence um, essence of like actually following the owner who defeated who. You know, Dumbledore was disarmed by Malfoy. Harry disarmed Malfoy. Whereas, even though you know um, Voldemort killed, killed you know, or just pulled up the wand, he's like Grindelwald. He had it in possession. He never owned it. You know what I mean? And then he killed. He killed Snape. But Snape was never the owner. You know what I mean? Right, Snape exactly. didn't have anything. So it, it's one of those things where maybe Dumbledore said to Gregorovich, I have the Elder Wand and I'm going to keep it safe. Let me disarm you and I win. Or, 
it's something. It could have been something so simple like that, but it skipped over Grindelwald, and that's how Dumbledore got it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with your theory about just the wand recognizing that it was just in his possession. It wasn't necessarily. I, I don't know. I, the way I that's view what it I, is that's more what like I always thought it was like one of those things. Yeah, where the wand again. It's like again, even you know, going back to the first book, it's the wand that chooses the yeah. wizard, and I think the other wand recognized that Dumbledore. And again, the wand was not made for someone to be powerful and cool. It's it's not like the one ring, you know. It, it, it's a great thing, but it was made for someone to use it wisely. And I think Dumbledore, you you know, it, the wand knew that Dumbledore was a great wizard. He defeated the owner who had it. He received the wand, and I think the wand picked Dumbledore to use it. And right. vice versa, same thing. You know, even though Dumbledore was defeated by Malfoy, it also picked Harry to use it. And Harry decided not to use it, but to repair so his old So here's a question. If Dumbledore had the Elder Wand, which we know he did, um, did he have that in, at the end of Book 5? Did Dumbledore have the Elder Wand when he was battling Voldemort? Because it always seemed – it, it yeah. would seem like that took it away, took things away a little bit with how powerful Dumbledore was in comparison mm. with Voldemort because – He had it until Draco took it away from him. At, yeah. At yeah. The, on the top He'd of the tower. He'd had it for quite some time. So he time. had had it the whole time. So, yeah. so he was but, actually – so Voldemort was defeated by the Elder Wand, you know. In, in, in a way, yeah. which, which is kind of cool. When Dumbledore and Voldemort were dueling in at the end of Book 5. That's kind of cool. And Yeah, yeah. and you, you got to remember, though, Dumbledore is like 150 years old. Yeah. And he's getting on in age, and he's still dueling like he was against the most powerful dark yeah, wizard yeah. around. When he, and on top of that, Dumbledore knew he had no way of being able to beat Voldemort. Something's going to happen to where he wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Because he knew it, because it was Harry's destiny. That's true. Him and, and and on top of that, Voldemort had gone to all these processes that Dumbledore already knew that you know that we wouldn't use. He had Horcruxes. Yeah. yeah, so he knew you know there was no way that he would be able to defeat Voldemort at the time, and he was just protecting Harry and everybody. Oh, else. that's that's a really good point. You know, he Mikey. was. That's a really good point. So I don't want to say that you know. I think the elder. I think personally, if I think if Dumbledore knew. knew there was no Horcruxes. There was nothing like that. I think he would have tried to finish off Voldemort. But he knew it had to be Harry, and he had to destroy all the Horcruxes. Right. That's why he went out, and he hurt his hand. He was trying to destroy the Horcruxes so Harry can do it. And he knew somewhere along the lines, he would end up losing it. And actually, we find out that he had planned it, that he was going to give the Elder Wand to Snape. He was going to lose the Elder Wand, so that way no one else can use it and be you know bad with it. That's really cool. You know what I mean? Because he, right. so, you know, Dumbledore and all his infinite, you know, a mass amounts of knowledge, he knew what was going to happen. Not maybe exactly how it was going to happen, but, you know, in the end, he knew Harry, you know, he knew Harry had the, you know, the cloak from the Deathly Hallows. He knew he was going to get the ring because he, that was you know, a Horcrux. And you know what? He knew eventually he would get the, you know, the wand. If not through Snape, he still got it though through Malfoy. Yeah. So it, it's one of those things. He knew Harry was going to get all those things, and he knew he was going to defeat Voldemort somehow. And he had really decided not to go with all those things to defeat Voldemort because it was too much of a temptation. That's why he hurt his hand. He saw the ring, and he wanted to bring back his sister, his mother, everyone. And that's why right. he put it on without destroying it first. And that's how we found out that he hurt his hand. So I think... The wand, you know, seeing it being stolen by Grindelwald, and we don't know it's Grindelwald at this time. I, I think it's one of those things where we find out what happens to it, and it's just a huge, huge turning point. Like, the Elder Wand, it was a contender for a title for the book. This is, like, a huge thing, and it's, it's so kind of nonchalantly, like, 
this is what Voldemort's after, and then let's move on. And I, I think it was really nicely downplayed in the book that this was kind of like, this is what happened. Hermi- Hermione kind of scolds Harry for, I'm going to take over, you know. She says, you're too tired if you're falling asleep. And he's like, "You, I can't control a dream. I think it's really well downplayed, so it kind of gives us enough information that where if we were really looking for it, we would have figured out what was going on already. But because it's so downplayed by Hermione scolding Harry, like we always see, we don't think about it until, like now, we can talk about it and go on and on about the Elder Wand. As we right, have. yeah. Um, and we, uh, so, we certainly yeah, that's could, why, that's but I, I, try, I really... See, I was trying to wrap yeah, it up, yeah, guys. Okay, yeah, okay, it's going on. Yeah, awesome. we, we do need to move on, though. So, okay. Well, uh, so wait, that, before we do that, yeah. we mentioned, right, I mean, Gregorovich was killed by... Uh, oh, oh, that's right. Now we yes. got it. Okay, I came up with a song. Micah, you asked me to. Did you? Yeah, you asked me to come up with a song. All right, now moving on to voicemails. We just got a few of them here, but uh, Andrew actually picked these out, and he wanted to show um, all of the listeners at home what some good questions are, even if they're not necessarily questions that are going to facilitate you know, a 20-minute long discussion, because we do get a lot of calls, uh, and it's like 10 seconds of people yelling pickles or, I love you, insert various male questions host name here so we could we could no i don't want girls to say they love me um so basically what we're saying is please please call with actual questions please this is all we ask for all right so rolling the first one hey bubble casters in the upcoming film half-blood prince there's a scene where dumbledore has to swim across the lake with harry to get to the cave also, about a chap- two chapters later, maybe, uh, Snape is running from Harry, sort of, at the end, trying to get out of the Hogwarts ground so he can operate. I just wanted to know what you guys thought about Michael Gambon having to swim. Well, you know, he seems like a pretty old man. I don't think he's too, too in shape. And also, Alan Rickman having to really run, because, I don't know, those two are rather old. No offense. I, mean, I think they're both great actors. But I just want to know what you guys thought. Love the show. Keep keep up the good work. Well, it's not, I'm pretty sure Snape can run. You know, Alan. Well, no, no, no. She she's talking about Alan Rickman is what she's saying because he's in his sixties. He's playing a character half his it'll age. Be one of those things that they work around with um, the way they film it, sort of thing. I don't think it'll be too terribly physically demanding. Um, for instance, they won't have Dumbledore sort of uh, with this raging current, you know, sort of uh, tidal waves uh, avoiding, you know, sort of Dumbledore. They 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 would uh, they would have him sort of wading through the waters, you know, and 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 I I think it's it's all in how they film it, you know. But I don't think that things will be too physically demanding for the actors. I think it's a fair enough question to ask, but I don't think they'll be doing anything terribly physically demanding. Well, can I ask no. a movie-related question to Mikey here? I mean, you're talking about Gambon swimming, but could they essentially give something to Dan Radcliffe that he would be swimming with and 
they could sort of digitally enhance it, or is that you know not truthfully possible? what right away my first way to do this is the swimming part he's not swimming through the lake just to clarify i, I know the voicemail says swimming through the lake it's he's she's act or i don't know who the voicemail was from but it was uh they're actually referring to when harry and dumbledore swim to before they go into the cave where the lake yeah, is that's what i'm thinking like the the ocean yeah that's before just just to make sure because they say lake but it's in the ocean before um what it could be is this is how i would do it is one we can't have gamma do it he's too old you know he, he's probably physically fit enough to do a lot of things but we don't want it to be in this big old ocean you know where it's you know gusting like in the water what we'll do is let's have a body double who's a lot younger put on some clothes and swim through it and it's a big high camera shot we never see the face and then we have gammon and uh you know radcliffe get out of the water together and it's like oh it was him the whole time you, you the magic yeah. of movie making is you can fake a lot of things same thing with you know rickman running if they do a long running scene like you know i can imagine them doing maybe rickman running 20 feet every 10 15 minutes while they set up a shot like i would be surprised if he couldn't run 20 feet but uh <laughs> if they had a long you know i would be surprised it's if not, he it's couldn't not this, this, you know, this I've seen sort work. of you know falling apart when the <laughs> Smart people, yeah, you know what I mean. Like I, I, I could be surprised if Gammon couldn't, you know, go, you know, waist deep in water where his entire clothes is looking wet, and he gets out from waist deep, and it's like okay. But same thing with Rickman, you know, if they shoot it from behind, they put somebody else who's the same height as him, younger, with a Snape wig, same black cloak and black pants and boots, and you're not going to know it's That's not true. him. That's the magic yeah. of editing. Yeah, no, you're you right. You, if you don't, you know, it's the same thing as you know, if you're not seeing their face, how do you know it's them? And again, these things where they're physically kind of, you know, if they were going to do like a big, like, swim Dumbledore, it's hard. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, he does have to get into that line on the way out uh, about him feeling safe. I'm with with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, also, it wouldn't be like it would be it wouldn't be five minutes of them swimming across the ocean. It's going to be a few split seconds. Where it's like, the camera panning overhead. You see the cliff drop. You see them in the water. And then it goes. Okay, you're going to get pounded out. by a wave. Action. Psh, okay, cut. You yeah, know, there you thing. go. Yeah. It's done. They can make it make yeah, it look like it's it. Be but so- I, I, I like this voicemail because it was very sort of it was a very good question. You know, you sort of think about that kind of stuff. It was. Right. Yeah, and it's kind of harsh for me when people ask about movie stuff because yeah, you you, you shot the down. You were just living. totally like, like that, I do. that's crap. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's not that it's crap. It's a great yeah. question. It's just like for me, the magic movie making. Like, you know how fake it is. My girlfriend, my my girlfriend makes fun of me all the time because it's like I could do that. Like I could do a lot of the stuff we see in movies. And I don't do a lot of the three D stuff, but I can do a lot of the things and. The magic movie making has it's kind of gone for me. I love movies though, so like when people ask questions like this, it's one of those things where it's like, I know how they did that. You want to know? I can tell you, and yeah. I can spend hours talking so cool about, about films. It, yeah. but we're not going to yeah. do that. I think in yeah. a way you're taking away the realistic aspect of it, being that they're not just going to, you know, keep filming if Rickman runs out of breath or something like that. You know? Okay. Yeah. Let's let's move on to the next voicemail, you guys. Hey, Mugglecasters. I'm calling in reference to episode 129. You guys keep saying over and over that Death Eaters killed Regulus Black, but in the fifth Harry Potter book, doesn't Sirius tell Harry that Voldemort killed him himself? Uh, love the show. Keep it up. Bye. No, Vold- no, in Order of the Phoenix... Uh, in okay. Order of the Phoenix... Yeah, that is that is what Sirius says. No, it's no. not. I think... No. Yeah, I thought... I have the no, quote. I not. have the quote. I did research on this question, Okay. Yes, so Micah, we have an man. actual answer. Order the Phoenix, okay? 
page 112. Sirius says, no, he was murdered by Voldemort, or on Voldemort's orders, more likely. I doubt Regulus was ever important enough to be killed by Voldemort in person. So yeah, that's and that's him underestimating that his brother. Now, Regulus obviously really died by getting pulled into the lake after he replaced the locket with the, you know, after from drinking the potion and getting and needing water. But nobody knows that. Um, but Sirius tells right. Harry that Voldemort, that that he doesn't think Regulus was important enough to be killed by Voldemort directly. But it, you know, it's possible that uh, either way, Regulus tried to back out. You can't back out of the Death Eaters, and boom. Okay. All right, next voicemail. Hey, guys. My name is Amanda, and I've been a listener for, like, a couple weeks now. So, But I have a question um, about the sorting. If Slytherin actually stressed to the extremes, the whole thing of pure, pure blood, pure blood, pure blood, why were Harry, Voldemort, and Snape considered to be put into Slytherin? If ne- neither neither of them, uh, yeah, um, of them are pure blood. And then there must be, why would that even come up? And, okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. Good um, question. I, I really hate to draw this parallel again. Well, it's not that I hate it, but I feel like sometimes it's kind of overdone. Um, but if you look at certain gosh, I don't want to say the Nazis again, but basically if you look at (laughs) the Nazis during World War II, which is all we've talked about for the past two episodes, they also had people in their ranks who didn't fit the Aryan description. And their explanation for that was that while over the many centuries past, their lines had become impure, they still were honorary because they held those quote-unquote values. And I think the reason the Sorting Hat would want to put Harry into Slytherin was because of the reason we've been given all along, because there was a little bit of Voldemort in him, and it sensed it. And of course, Voldemort and Snape also held those values of pure bloods being superior. So, I think it's one of those things where that's why the Sorting Hat chooses houses. That's why the founders aren't still alive. Or not why, but because, I mean... Slytherin was very adamant that only pure-blood wizards should be trained, so he took those kind of wizards into his house. He got upset with the other founders and left Hogwarts. And in his absence, the other founders were able to make it a little bit more, I think, well-rounded. I think they were able to make the the, the four houses a little bit more well-rounded and, and just sort of allow Slytherin to include non-pure-bloods, but who, who sort of practice the other skills, the secondary characteristics of a Slytherin, of being uh, whatever those may be. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think even if you go back to Goblet of Fire, where that was the the Sorting Hat song, um, you know, talked about the four houses, and it, specifically with Slytherin, it talked about great ambition, and all three of those characters, regardless of blood uh, line, were highly ambitious individuals. And it's possible the Sorting Hats saw that. In but them. but it does seem, and, and, it, and it is true that Slytherin was very important. You know, he did think only pure blood should be educated. But I think because he left, you know, Hogwarts, then everybody else was, was able to sort of make Slytherin a more fair house. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Eric, actually. Um, so are we done with that one? Yes? No? Okay. Next one. 
In Deathly Hallows, Hermione is explaining how to destroy Horcruxes. She said that the reason Ginny was possessed by Tom Riddle's diary was because she grew attached to it. Do you think Umbridge was also attached to the locket and thereby possessed as well? I don't like excusing Umbridge's actions because she was possessed. I think, uh... We talked last week about how I think the locket enhanced Umbridge's sort of evil, allowed her to to be more comfortable to do things. Well, not even that, but just sort of gave her the gave her an edge, you know, that she wouldn't. But I don't think she realized that the edge existed. I think she just felt particularly full of malice, and uh, I don't think the the locket ever made itself aware, you know, to or made itself. Uh, um, obvious to Umbridge for what it was. I think she was just really proud to have the locket. I don't think it possessed her necessarily, but I do think there was some kind of uh, power relationship going on. Well, I, I don't yeah, know if I agree, I agree with, with that. that. I mean, I, I think Umbridge is internally just a nasty, nasty person, and I, I it, this kind of goes to what. Um, I don't know who said it earlier, but I feel like the locket would only act when felt threatened upon. So you have the locket sort of knowing that Harry, Ron, and Hermione meant to do it harm, whereas Umbridge wasn't going to be doing anything like that to it. She actually liked it and, uh, you know, kind of wore it as a prize. So, so it to didn't speak. need to be special or anything. It didn't even need to. It, it didn't need to change yeah. her. I think she already possessed a lot of the qualities that the locket itself would have, you know, displayed or, you know, something along those lines. And, um, I think in book seven, we've just gotten to the point where Umbridge has elevated herself so high within the ministry, which probably was always an ambition of hers that she feels in a way I mean just look at, at, at why she's acting the way she's acting she comes up with this false heritage to sort of secure her pure blood nature to all these death eaters that are around her and that in a way makes her feel more comfortable and if she acts upon those insecurities and makes it seem as if she's this all powerful you know ministry official then uh, she can sort of do as she pleases without anybody asking any questions. And I just think that that's her character. That's who she is. She's a horrible, horrible person. And, you know, it just goes to show you that not all, it's not just the Death Eaters. You know, it's, there are people out there that aren't Death Eaters that are just as mean and vindictive. Uh, I agree with you. And also one thing we need to kind of look at that right away struck me when Ginny was possessed by the diary, one, she blacked out. And on top of that, Voldemort wasn't back yet. He wasn't, you know, corporeal. He wasn't there. He was just kind of vapor. And he actually tried to come back. He tried to come back through the diary. Whereas when Umbridge actually had the locket, yes, it was part of his, you know, it was part of his soul and it was his Horcrux, but it wasn't trying to become a second, Voldemort, you know what I mean? So I, I think we really need to learn more how Horcruxes work to really kind of define any of that yeah. because, again, they're completely two different situations where Ginny told her most secret, you know, her her deepest secrets into the diary and the diary absorbed them and got a little bit more of her each time she did that, whereas the locket kind of sat on side. There was no way for it, you know, umbrage to kind of feed it other than maybe feeling good and kind of 
you know, thriving and off of it. And that's the thing with yeah. the, that's so Plus, special about the diary was that it was in it, 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 that's what Dumbledore was so shocked about was that it was disposable, but that the diary had a special function. The diary was supposed to possess whoever uh, wrote in it or whatever to open the chamber of secrets. That was that was a purpose. So it was it was it was different than the locket Horcrux because it it just in its in its whole design it was actually made to be sort of a symbiotic sort of thing as as opposed to the locket which is just supportive you know more of your standard Horcrux which is just supposed to preserve your soul. And on top of that, it was also I, I believe the diary was probably one of the first Horcruxes uh, Tom Riddle Voldemort made because it. I feel it was stronger than any of the other ones. And we know he already has started making Horcruxes with the ring after he killed, you know, his parents when he was a six year. So I think there's a lot of things to kind of look at that one until we can kind of see more into, you know, with whatever book Joe might release um, regarding Harry Potter. You know, we, we need to find out more about Horcruxes because, you know, we can have a whole other show on Horcruxes and just talk yeah, about each one in yeah. detail. And, and it's one of those things where there's a lot to discuss about that. And again, Voldemort's back already and she has a Horcrux that's just kind of sitting there and not in use until he dies again and needs to be brought back with one of them or something. Right. Really, uh, really long and difficult subject, but... Uh... Okay. I do believe that's going to wrap up this week's show. It's time to leave. We're not even going to do the closing announcements. No, really, we are. Uh, so don't forget, you can always send letters, postcards, and gold to P.O. Box 3151, <laughs> coming Georgia 30028. Please don't send pickles. I'm so sick and tired of pickles. You can also call and leave us a voicemail if you're living in the U.S. That number is 121820-MAGIC. Or if you're in the United Kingdom, please call 020-814-0677. And last but certainly not least, all of our mates down in Australia can reach us by calling 028-003-5668. My roommate is cracking up laughing right now, and I don't know why. You can also... Uh, you can also Skype... <laughs> Shut up, Julia! You can also Skype the username MuggleCast. However, please keep all messages under a minute and do eliminate as much background noise as possible. If you'd like to email us, just use the feedback form at MuggleCast.com or write to the host individually by contacting us at our first name at staff.mugglenet.com. You can also visit one of our several community outlets, the MySpace, Facebook, YouTube, Forever, Last FM, and the fan listing forums. And finally, don't forget to vote for us at Podcast Alley, dig the show at dig.com, and rate and review us at Yahoo Podcasts. And with that, I'm Laura Thompson. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Mike Tannebell. And I'm Mikey B. We'll see everybody next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Micah Tannenbaum is standing by in the MuggleCast News Center with the PAX Week's top Harry Potter's news. <laughs> okay, let me try wah, that again. Wah. <laughs> you. Okay. Wah, wah, wah. That was intense. <laughs> that no, is no, Susan. Wait. Is Micah really standing by or is he sitting by? Is he kneeling by? It sounds much better to say standing yeah. by. It, it's like we're yeah. CNN almost. Okay, can we go? Yeah. Okay, hang on. Should be, say leaning by.
Say Mikey, Micah is leaning by. No. <laughs> floating, to, floating in the uh, abyss that we call the Mogul Casting Center. Levitating by. <laughs> All right, okay. Micah Tannenbaum is standing by in the Mungle Cats News Center with the top... <laughs> God, I can't do this. All right. But this week's Micah Tannenbaum yeah. is standing by in the... <laughs> See, I can't even do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Micah, you do it. Okay. Micah, you should do it. One, two, three. No, no, you I'm... say Micah. I'm standing by in the Mungle Cats <laughs> News Center. I'm going to get Andrew's it Andrew's not time. here. Micah, you do it, please. Uh, let me... I just got to get it right. Let's Micah Tannenbaum... No, 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 just... this will be funnier. No, no, no. Micah Tannenbaum is standing by in the MuggleCast News Center with the past week's top Harry Potter news stories. Micah. <laughs> Thanks, Micah. <laughs> Thanks, Micah. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> oh, so funny, Micah. <laughs> That's going to be great. Anyway. <laughs>